We're going to open the scriptures in a moment or two. And we're going to come to, to see how we might have some revelation from the Bible. Um, because the, the Bible, is, it's the, how, the, how it's described to us is God-breathed. Yeah? God-breathed. It's quite an intimate thing. You know, he used other people to kind of tell it and write it. But the, the actual kind of the origin of it is within the spirit of God. It's the outpouring of his creative word. And he speaks to us about himself. And he speaks to us about our state. And he speaks to us about how those two might be reconciled through Jesus Christ. God become flesh. And then what that looks like for the rest of our lives until he comes again. The Bible's really, really good. And um, we're going to spend a little bit of time over weeks to come in um, the book of Joshua. And I know, um, you know, it comes up on the screen for us, uh, which is really helpful when we have the, the Word of God read to us. And, uh, and you know, you, we may have it on our phones or our tablets and we scroll through or we tap a menu, don't we, uh, for the bit. But in these instances, it's actually one of those times when it's quite helpful to have a paper Bible. Do you remember those things? Do you remember paper Bible? Do you remember paper? Does anybody remember paper? Um, that's stuff that used to write on and then turn into paper aeroplanes and shoot around the classroom and such. Or bundle up and make... Do people still make spitballs with Bic Biros? Do people do that in school? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thank you. You're my man. Okay. Um, paper. And the reason why the paper Bible... I should have asked the teacher. Do they still do that? Yeah, okay. Um, the, the reason why a paper Bible is helpful in this is because it helps us to orient ourselves within the landscape and the, the timelines of the Bible. See, the Bible is essentially one big story. It's one big story of how God made everything perfect. And, and the, the pinnacle of creation was how he made people, people just like you and me, in his image, intended to bear his image and to be glory bearers in creation and fulfill his purposes. And yet... Um, we call it the fall, and we kind of know what that means, but it's actually an active rebellion. It's not a tripping up. And people chose actively to go away from God, to choose a different way and rupture uh, that relationship and bring the brokenness of sin into the world. And we chose that. Uh, and, and that's been the wrestling and the difficulty ever since through this story. And yet God chooses himself not to dispense with his broken creation or the people who broke it. Rather, God comes into that place um, to rescue us and to make all things new. And he does that in the only way that's possible. By God himself becoming a person like you or me, yet without any wrongdoing, no sin, no stain, no blemish. And yet he goes and takes all of the punishment upon himself, all of the brokenness of the world upon himself. So that through him, everything might be healed and made whole again. And that relationship with God might be utterly and completely restored. And, you know, we experience some of that in the here and now. And we're looking forward to the completion of that. Is anybody looking forward to Jesus coming again? Is anybody looking forward to that? That's really, really good news. And so within this story, if you've got a paper Bible, um, and brownie points for those of you who do, um, you would leaf through. You're all going to come with paper Bibles next week, aren't you? Anybody going to come with a paper Bible next week? Okay, all right, good, good. There are some under the chairs as well. You can find them. And... Um, no brownie points for now, Mikey. The time's passed. But yeah. um, you can leaf through the story. And um, you kind of find your way through some of the first books of the Bible. You've got Genesis there, the, 
the book of beginnings and, and you've got Exodus and how God first brings people out of slavery and it's an incredible kind of lens for us to see the Bible through. And you've got uh, Leviticus and Numbers. Those are the books that you hope Pastor Greg never preaches from. Yeah, because uh, they're thoroughly confusing. And uh, anyhow, and uh, and then you've got Deuteronomy that kind of really importantly recaps things. Because you remember how earlier I said that we're very forgetful. The Bible says we're very forgetful, and so Deuteronomy comes to retell the whole thing over again. And and not much time had passed, but the people needed retelling over again. And then uh, after Deuteronomy, then comes this book, Joshua. And Anasu has read to us the first nine verses of the book of Joshua. Our, our title for these um, few sermons in the book of Joshua, because we don't have many, we're only going to spend four weeks here, so it's a brief overview. You'll have to dig into it much more for yourself and in your transformed communities. Um, we've got these four times that we're going to be in this book, and we're going to talk about things of consecration and conquest. Now, probably words that you wouldn't use often in ordinary um, conversation, but they have particular meaning, and something's going to be illuminated for us. Just to say, in the evenings, we're going to be starting into a different sermon series um, to what we have in the mornings, and so starting tonight and journeying through towards Easter, we're going to be starting a sermon series looking at the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And seeing how these um, things that Jesus said help us, not only in our journey to the cross, to salvation, but in our journey from the cross to live the life of the resurrection. So I would commend that to you as well. Um, but in the mornings, Joshua, consecration and conquest. I don't know whether you noticed this morning when you came in, uh, this little heap of stones here. Um, I, I went and sat next to Erin um, when she arrived and she said when she looked at it, the first thing she thought it was was a pile of horse manure it kind of has that look about it doesn't it anybody else think that yeah okay um, there's two honest people in the church but it, it's it's a pile of stones and I nicked them from outside the church um, enough to like not like make the church fall down or anything so don't worry um, have you ever have you been out in the countryside like in the Lake District or the Peak District or anywhere like that and have you seen dry stone walling? Have you seen this? Is anyone else mesmerized by dry stone walling? There's like five people who are willing to admit it. Everyone else is like, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I'm, I'm mesmerized by dry stone walling and how these um, grizzled old fellas, they're always grizzled old fellas, I think, in my imagination. They can kind of place these things together, can't they? And... Um, I've already kind of not doing very well. Um, but they can put them together, and then these bits of stone that they just whack together, just so. They, they're there for generations, aren't they? They're there, and, and they seem, don't they, when you come across them in the, uh, in the countryside, they seem like as old as the hills themselves. Do you want to talk amongst yourselves? I'm kind of having fun here. Um, I'm quite pleased with that. That's pretty good. Apart from that last bit. Oh, do you know? They're as old as the hills themselves, aren't they? And then the kind of the moss and the lichen and everything grows into it, and that you know the muck gets blown into it, and it just it's there, isn't it? And it's kind of immovable. 
except for maybe by a, a really big sheep or something like that, kind of some scrabbling, rambling people or something. But the building of things like that, fascinating. Just put rocks together and it kind of, it is something that it wasn't before. It's not any, that's not impressive, is it? Sorry, it's a bad description, but... Uh, um, but when it's done, something that was just before, bits of rock lying around the landscape, now has meaning and purpose. And, it, and it's more than just the meaning of an obvious kind of barrier, but it, it speaks about things, doesn't it? It says, it says to those who know, you go this side of it, and that's so-and-so's land. It belongs to so-and-so. You go the other side, it belongs to such-and-such. It says things like, this side is where all the cows are, and this side is the field you don't want to go in because that's where we keep the bull. You know, it says things like that. It has kind of meaning. And then you see that the hillside, and, and, um, and you see these kind of things crisscrossed about. Does it, is, I, I'm speaking to the, uh, you know, the, the, I don't know, the, 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 probably the British people here. This is not to be exclusive at all. But when you see this, it kind of says, it feels like home a little bit for an English person. Am I on my own in this? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. It looks a bit like home. It just kind of speaks something about, I don't know what it is when you go back home to Nigeria or the Philippines or whatever. What speaks of home? It's probably not dry stone walling. I don't imagine. There are different things. But uh, it, it, it has meaning. And I don't know about you. I'm a poetic soul. You know this about me. But when I see these things crisscrossing the countryside, they're kind of beautiful. I've really whittled it down to me and about two other people now in the whole church. They're kind of beautiful. These things that are rich in meaning and purpose and beauty and history and they're something of a shared heritage. I'm sure you are already asking yourself, why on earth are you banging on about stones so much, Pastor Greg? Hold on to that thought just for a moment. You know, we're going to come in a little while, chapter four of this fascinating book, and don't go there just yet, but we're going to come and we're going to see how stones can speak to us really, really profoundly and powerfully. But first, God speaks. Uh, you know, God can speak through stones. Interestingly enough, God says, if, if we don't start to praise him, then he'll probably got the stones doing it anyway. But God also speaks himself. God speaks. What does God speak to open this story, this, this book, this chapter in the history of people and God? God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem like a really good way to start a story. Does it seem like it to you? death doesn't seem like a good way to kind of start anything, frankly. But for it to be Moses, my servant, you know, this is a significant character who is dead, this seems like this should be the end of the story, not the beginning of the story. This seems like, well, you know, isn't that, are we done? But no, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead now, therefore. And loads is going to follow this. But it's quite a big thing for us to get from Moses, my servant, is dead into the now therefores. The other day, as a family, we, um, we went for a bit of a stroll in Arrow Park. 
and they've got a really good playground in Arrow Park. Has anybody visited the playground? Um, those of you who don't have kids, no idea what you're doing there. But anyhow, um, we, go into, we go into the playground, and um, they've got this really cool seesaw. It's really, really cool. And it's basically a bunch of logs kind of strapped together. And you don't kind of sit on it in the conventional fashion. You stand on it. And you can stand on it in groups. And there's been this long debate, in my mind at least, and within our family, is does daddy weigh more than the rest of the family put together? (laughs) Stop, no, don't pile in on this. I said it was a debate in our family. The rest of you can just, you know, shove off. Um, but we thought, let's, let's use this seesaw to establish whether um, Daddy does weigh more than the rest of the family put together. And I am very glad to report that my kids are growing well. And so no longer does Daddy weigh more than everybody else in the family. But it was, it was touch and go. <laughs> I reckon if I took one step forward, I would have had him. Um, but then after we did this, I, I got on the, with, with Judah and we decided, let's walk from end to end because that's pretty fun too. And so we were walking from end to end and you get to the fulcrum and uh, because daddy's a little bit timid, kind of grabs hold of his boy at that point. And, uh, but it starts to tipple topple and forward it goes and down you go. And it's quite easy. It's easy, you just walk forward and over it goes. It's a similar kind of point in history here but it's not easy. The seesaw's like this, and the people are here. And the, the fulcrum is that they've come, and, and the, the scenery here is that they're by the banks of the River Jordan. And, and that means that finally, 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 they've journeyed to the, just on the edge of the place that God has promised to them. Had a little description of it in our reading earlier. And they're on that edge. And, and they're on that point, and that fulcrum point, but something else has happened. Moses, my servant, is dead. And you know, it's not going to be easy necessarily to take those steps and tip over the seesaw into the next little bit. It's not going to be that easy. It's not going to be easy just to move. So what is it? How is it that they're going to come into the next chapter? Moses, my servant. Who was this guy? Deuteronomy 34, just that book immediately prior. It tells us this in verses 10 to 12. There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. My goodness. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land with mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. Face to face with God. Mighty power at work. No one like him. No prophet like him. This is a big, big character. Moses, my servant, is dead. Follow that, Joshua. As one commentator on the book says, What do you do when the servant of God dies and a raging river lies between you and the land that you are to inherit? It's not going to be easy to tip this seesaw. Well, little spoiler alert, they are going to get there. (laughs) That's what these stones are about. They're going to build a memorial 
to what God's going to do. But the memorial's not going to be to the memory of Moses. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us that no one even knows where he was buried. (laughs) Now, the memorial is going to be to the fact, primarily, that God is still with them. The hero of the story is not actually Moses, nor is it Joshua, but the hero of the story is God. Because of that, the promise still stands. Again, that commentator says, Moses may die, God's promise lives on. There is the passing of an era, yet the endurance of the promise. Yahweh's fidelity does not hinge on the achievements of men. That's not how the seesaw turns. However gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. The promise still stands. Circumstances may change, but the promise still stands. People may come and go, but the promise still stands. Death and decay may be a part of the story, but the promise still stands. The hero of our story is still mighty to save. There's something that we probably need to recognize about Moses. Now, we here have the defining statement of how Moses is to be remembered. That's the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But a part of his story was that in anger and frustration, he was disobedient to God. And because of that, he wasn't allowed to enter the land that God has promised. I don't know whether you would see it as a good thing or a bad thing, but God on one occasion took him up to a high place and showed him all of the land. And he said, you're allowed to see it and to know that your descendants will go into it, but it's not for you. I'm always mixed opinion about that. Is that like a nice thing or not a good thing? I don't know. If you weren't going to go in, would you want to know? I suppose Moses had a better character than me. And so he would want to know that that was where it was going to be. That's where the people would end up. The promise would be fulfilled. But Moses couldn't enter that. Even Moses, like you and like me, knew the failure of sin and its brokenness, the consequence of it. And it reminds us, actually, as we come into this book of Joshua, that there are no favorites with God. There are no favorites. When God makes promises of salvation, promises of covenant relationship with him, when God makes promises of entering into the fullness of his kingdom and of his rest, he's not saying it's just for the people of the stature of Moses. Do you ever look around you at other Christians and think, you know, ah, I don't have a prayer life like them, I don't think. or I don't think I can handle the Bible like they handle it. I don't think I'm as good of a person as they are. Maybe I won't enjoy all the things of God. Do you ever think that to yourself? Do you ever think maybe I'm, I'm just not as skilled as they are? I don't, I don't seem to be quite the kind of you know, person of whatever that they are. Well, the Bible here is teaching us that certainly... It's not to dismiss any of those things. All of these things are good. But God doesn't have favorites in his dealings with people. He gives us all the same opportunity. He presents to us all the same standard. And he gives to us all the same grace. 
Here we are in the, the time of the grace of Jesus Christ. Come to us through a cross. And it's the same cross for you as it is for me, as it is for anybody. God has no favorites. He'll deal with us all in the same way. Same kind of mercy. There's no free passes for the gifted among us, for those who do more or tithe more. There's no free passes for the better looking among us or those who look a bit more neat and tidy in their lives or whatever. No free passes for those of us with letters after our name or anything like that. God simply calls us to a life of obedience. Obedience. It's at the same time incredibly simple and hugely challenging. So how can we be obedient? How can we be obedient to God? Well, Joshua, and to some extent his friend Caleb, who you might have heard of before and will find later on in the story, They show us how obedience can be cultivated, how we can be people who find ourselves within the will of God. There's a couple of things that I want to show you that Joshua particularly was marked by. And these are the things that lead us into lives of obedience. There's a reason, and just to kind of recap the story again, there's a reason why only two people of the previous generation were able to go into this land of promise. Just Joshua just Caleb. There's a reason why that was the case. It's because of obedience. And the obedience had to flow from somewhere. Because I'm not coming to you today with a message from God that says, pull your socks up and try a bit harder. That is not what I'm coming to you today with. Never ever hear that from the scriptures. Because it ain't from God. God never comes to you and says, just try a bit harder. Because he knows that we're not good enough. There you go. That's some weight off your shoulders. God comes to us with an invitation to something else that will lead us into lives of obedience. What are these things? Well, first thing is devotion. Devotion. And this is the key, one of the defining factors of the life of Joshua. Joshua is going to lead these people into the land. We'll see how he happens in a moment or two. He's going to lead these people in. He's going to be obedient to God. He's going to see the miraculous. Something profound is going to happen through his life. But it wouldn't have happened if he wasn't a man of devotion. How do I know that he was a person of devotion? Well, in Exodus 33 and verse 11, we find these words. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses. Here it is again. Face to face. Incredible intimacy. Moses was a man of devotion too. As a man speaks to his friend. Then when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tents. And what does that say to you? That says to me that he's a person who longs to be in the presence of his God. You know, in that season, in that time of his life, he didn't have the invitation uh, that was quite the same as Moses. That was to come. But he had the opportunity to learn. He had the opportunity to experience. He had the opportunity to take part in and to be close to. And everything that he was gaining, he said, I want more. I want more. I want more. What does God say to us? You will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all your hearts. 
What does the Bible say? The Lord's eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully devoted to him. God invites us into the way of devotion, closeness, the presence of God, communion with him. Is this the practice of your life? Are you close to God? Are you spending time with him? You know, we don't have a tent in the desert where you have to go. We facilitate, perhaps, in some senses, the presence of God. And, you know, I guess that's perhaps why we're here this morning. But when you grab a hold of something of God this morning, whether it's through the pages of Scripture or through the, the, the worship that we're offering to God or the act of communion and the fellowship with the saints, when you're encountering God in these things, you know, do we kind of, are we clock watching and then we're like, ah, oh, I'm done, mate, I'm out, I'm gone. Or do we think to ourselves, how can I cultivate what I have experienced here in part you know Moses he was there face to face with God receiving everything he needed to go and be the person that God called him to be but when Moses left Joshua would have had a choice he would have had a choice he would have said oh well, Moses is fine I'm just going to go and go on his coattails he said Moses has got what he's got surely I can just get in that slipstream no. He said, I want to know God like he knows God. I want to see God like he sees God. I want to encounter God like he encounters God. I want to be devoted and I want to be changed. Secondhand faith won't enable you to be obedient to God in the tough times of life. It just won't. Partial experience will get you so far but no further. We need to be devoted to God. How do you cultivate this? In the quiet space, in the personal space, in community with friends, in these gathered spaces wherever we go, in your workplaces and where you study and with your family and all of these kinds of places of life. You're cultivating a life of devotion. This was the pattern for Joshua. How do I know it? It's not just one occasion. You read on in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 5. And Joshua is able to speak with authority and experience to the people of God. And he says this to them. He says, consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? Set yourselves apart as holy. Different. Other. Committed to God. Set yourselves apart. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among us. This is the promise. But Joshua has learned how to step into the promises of God through obedience. And he knows that the way of stepping into the promises of God is through consecration. It's through devotion. That's what's going to get him into the land. That's what's going to tip the seesaw. It's because he loves and longs for his God. How about me? How about you? How about us? Do we long for our God? And as well as this mark of devotion, Joshua and Caleb certainly too, they were marked by faith. 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 They were marked by an unshaking, excited belief in their God. 
They knew that when he spoke, it was. They knew that he was the one of truth. That he was foundational, substantial. And they would place their lives once and for all firmly upon him and his word. They were people of faith. And they were people of faith where no one around them seemed to have any. That's a tough place to be, isn't there? And Joshua, Caleb, they were part of a group that a long time back, they went in to spy out this land and to see whether the promise of God could possibly come true and, and how it might come true. See, God has said, I'm going to give it to you. This land, it's going to be yours. And so Moses had sent in these spies, and some of you may remember the story. And, and ten came back with a bad report, and two came back with a good report. Joshua and Caleb, what was their good report? They said this in Numbers chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. If the Lord delights in us. Isn't that speaking again of a life of devotion? They know that this is relational. God doesn't do anything apart from relationship. But they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us. He will bring us into this land and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. If you want to see God's promises become your reality, well, you're going to have to be obedient to him. Can I just dispel any Christian myths you may have? There is no magic secret prayer that you can pray to get to God to do your will if you're not doing his will. <laughs> it doesn't exist. There are no silver bullets. Obedience is necessary. And God says it's better than sacrifice. You can't impress him. You can't impress him. But we submit ourselves to him. And obedience will never come through trying a bit harder. It'll never come through pulling up your socks and just being a bit better. It'll never come by you saying, oh, I can fix myself. I know how to be, I'll just do this. I'll just, I, I, I. It'll never come. The obedience that enables us to walk into the promises of God comes through lives of devotion and of faith. That's quite simple, isn't it? Is that quite simple? Is that quite challenging? Hear God's voice and hear his voice above all others. Because there are certainly going to be times in your life, my life, the life of this church, when we might, you know, hear similar words. You know, how did that sound? Moses, my servant, is dead. It might be chapters have come to a close. It might be obstacles seem to be present. It might be something has happened that was unlooked for and unwanted, but there it is. How can we continue to walk in obedience? Because the promise still stands. There's one quick way I want to represent this to you before we come back to our stones. And um, Jack, can you help me? There's that triangle. And one way that I've heard this represented, and I want to share it with you, is this, um, this idea of, uh, of the shape that you know, I think would be helpful to us. And in our transformed communities, we often consider a triangle. And it speaks to us of the, the three dynamics or, or kind of directions of our faith. The upward, the inward, and the outward. And oftentimes we've represented it like this, that upward is our relationship with God, our Father. That because he is our Father, we are a family. 
The inward is the example to us and the, the possibility through Jesus Christ who comes as a servant. And so we are able in his likeness to serve our family. And the outward is that missional spirit, that compulsion of the spirit of God for us to go and make disciples. And we talk about being families of missionary servants, disciples who are sent to make disciples. Here I want to just give a slightly different filter to this lens um, so that we can see actually how we might move from simply saying, I'm going to try a bit harder to be obedient, actually through something to something, and then see how actually we can reverse that process in every part of life. You see, I think oftentimes, you know, we know that as Christians, our faith, it's not about behavior modification really. It's not about just like being a bit better at this, that, or the other. Because does anybody know anybody who isn't a Christian, but they're nicer than you? Does any, <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> does anybody know anybody who, that, you know, they're not a believer in Jesus, but are they more even-tempered than you? I'm putting up two hands and a leg for that one. Um, you know, maybe, are they a bit kinder? That maybe, uh, you know, do they, do they, do, uh, we all know people who aren't followers of Jesus, and yet they're really, really lovely people, aren't they? And so we know, I guess just really obviously, Christianity isn't just about behavior modification. If it was, then that probably wouldn't be the case. Don't worry about it. If, if you're more like Jesus today than you were yesterday, then you're in the right direction. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But it's not just about fixing how we behave. We know actually it's kind of rooted in something else. It's rooted in what we believe. The promises of God. But just like we sometimes look at our behavior, how we outwork the promises, and we sometimes say, oh, you know, I think that could be better. Does anybody ever think, I wish I could be more believing? Does anybody ever feel like that? Is it just me who sometimes has doubts? Oh, goodness, only the pastor has doubts. Somebody else want to take over? <laughs> Come on. Uh, we do, don't we? Sometimes our believing doesn't seem fully formed and sometimes it takes some knocks and, and battering. Can I say to you, it's because there's a, a, another dynamic that actually is foundational to your believing and you can see it up there at the top of the triangle. It's your beholding. Because all too often we open up our Bibles and we find a promise from God or a truth about him and we say, great. I'm going to believe that verse and then everything's going to be all right. Does it always work? <laughs> it's all right. You're allowed to be honest in church. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes yes, but sometimes not so much. Hey, I tell you, this is how we can actually reshape our believing. It's in the beholding of the one who has made the promises and is the one who will keep his promises. Don't separate the promise from the promise maker. Don't separate the promise from the promise keeper. You would do well to look at your Bible. But when you look at your Bible, can you go a step further and look at your Savior? Can you do that? This is what we've been describing in the example of Joshua. He didn't just hear the promise of God and say, right, I'm going to just be this tough guy and I'm going to get it all done. No, no, no. He saw his God's. He, he knew the voice of his God. And so when the promise came from his God, his, his, his belief wasn't just rooted in, oh, that sounds nice, I'm on board with that. His belief was rooted in, my God is able. 
His belief was rooted in, I know this God. He is faithful and he is true. And what he has promised, he has done, is doing, and will continue to do until the end of time and beyond. This is where everything is rooted for Joshua. This is what causes the seesaw to topple over. Christians, can I say, don't just believe in the Bible. I did put the word just in there, don't worry. Don't just believe in the Bible. Believe in the God of the Bible. Can you do that? Yes. You'll only be able to do that if you get to know the God of the Bible. Yes. <clears throat> it's much easier just to cherry pick a few verses and run with it and hope for the best. Mm. It won't get you very far. You need to know God. I need to know God. We need to be devoted to him and in faithful obedience to him. Maybe you've seen things in life and you say to yourself, I never would have believed it. You know anyone who's ever been to the Grand Canyon? And they're like, you know, seen pictures, but you don't believe it until you're there. People say these kinds of things, don't they? Oh, I don't know, the pyramids in Egypt or something like that. And, and oh, you wouldn't believe it until but then you see it. And things like, I don't know, Tramway getting promoted back into the football league. You're like, you'd never believe it. But then it, or Liverpool winning the premiership. Please, God, yes and amen. Come on, church. Are you people of faith? You're like, I never would believe it. Then you see it. Feel like I, I can touch it. Come on. Come on, Lord. Don't you be praying against me, Oliver. I can see you are. Um, things that you would never quite believe. You see it, and then you can believe it. Come on, church. Would you see God with me? Would you? I want to see God more. I want to be devoted to him. More, please. I want to see more of his glory in my life. Is there anybody else with me today? Come on, church. <laughs> Give yourself a kick in the seat of the pants. <laughs> Wake yourself up a little. We need to see God. That's how we'll believe his promises. That's what will change our living, our, our going, our, our being. Now, back to those stones. Back to these rocks. You see, Joshua, he's devoted to God. He's believing in God's promises. And so God says to him, he says, now Joshua, I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the people into the land. And I'm going to do so um, by exalting you. He says, as the people looked at Moses, so they're going to look at you. That's how it's going to be. So the promise still stands. Death cannot stop the promises of God. This is how it's going to be. And so all the instruction comes about how they're going to come in and they bring the ark. and the, the, It's all going to come into the river and then people will come and they'll follow at a, a long distance. Don't know about you. <laughs> I think I'd want to be up close because, you know, if, if that's what moves the water, I want to be close to that. But God says, no, you've got to be a long way back. He's asking for quite a bit of uh, faith from the people. Read it for yourself. But then as they go through, it's 12 tribes, 12 kind of parts of the people of God. And they're supposed to all grab a stone um, as they go through. And, and it all happens exactly how God said it would. 
because this man of devotion and of faith calls the people to devotion and faith and then things go well. You see, it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and so they go through it and it's described like this, that God piled the water up. I love that. I love it. Have you ever tried to grab water? Have you ever? You're like, you're really daft, Greg. <laughs> I know I am. But you try to, and, and I see my boy, if we put bubble bath in the bath, just for my boy, it's not for me, I promise. Um, but if we do it, and he'll try and grab it, but the harder he tries to grab, and the more he tries to accumulate, the more it slips through his fingers. You know how this goes, right? You can't pile up water unless you're God. <laughs> so he does. He piles up the water right back at a town they call Adam, way, way back, and it's dry. Because just as it was with Moses, so it'll be with you, Joshua. And what he did that one time, now he's going to do it again. And they walk through on dry land into the land of promise. The promise still stands. And they take these stones. I got 12. Mine aren't very big. Because uh, I'm just one person, not 12 people. So that's all I could carry. Not really. I can carry more than that. Um, but... Uh, they took one for each tribe and they brought it through and then the place that they ended up, they, they laid them out where they were going to lie and then Joshua was told to kind of put them together in a memorial. What do these stones mean? What do these stones mean for us? Well, they speak of a few things. One thing they speak of is unity. These 12 tribes, read it for yourself, they were already starting to break apart already. Gad, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they got up towards that river, they looked at the people they were going to have to conquer, they saw how difficult it might be and they said, ah, do you know what, we're alright over here, thanks very much. The rest of you can go and do all that trouble, we'll just stay here. People start to break apart from the things and the purposes and the promises of God very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. God against these things. Because the heart of God says to them, no way, no way, no way. There's unity in the people of God. You know, Jesus, just before he's about to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, brutally used and crucified upon a cross, what does he pray for? Father, that they would be one, even as we are one. Come on. Are you in this together, church? Do you love one another? Are you with one another? literally with one another or do you not see each other Sunday to Sunday are you with one another genuinely because you can't do this virtually you know how people used to say I'm with you in spirit brother take your freaking spirit away that's weird you can't what you can't disembody your spirit if you could do that I don't like you be with one another I didn't think this was like rocket science. Unity, 12 stones, they all went over. They all had to go in. Unity. And they speak of God also. They speak of his faithfulness. That the waters didn't overwhelm them. You know, the, the Bible says those stones, they stayed there even to the end of this period of history and probably long after. 
Those stones, they said, those tribes we were called to go and conquer, they didn't beat us. Those stones said, we're not in slavery in Egypt anymore. Those stones said, we're not wandering in the desert anymore. Those stones said, God's promises come true. Those stones said, we're still in this together. Those stones said a hundred, a thousand, a billion things. And these stones, they speak to us just the same today. They speak to us about the faithfulness of God. They speak to us these truths that God builds his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you know what? We have better than a pile of stones. We have one big round stone that's been rolled away, don't we? And don't we have a rock-hewn cave that's empty because Jesus Christ is alive? I like them stones. These stones that speak to me of the resurrection, victory, and life of Jesus Christ, I like them stones. And don't we have other stones? What does the Bible say about you and me? That we are living stones. That God has put together into a temple, as it were, of his presence and his wonder. That he is in us. I like them stones. Do you like the church? You're a miserable bunch today. It's a good job I love you. As well as the unity and as well as the memorial, what else do these stones speak? And this is the last thing. Oh, I tell you what, you've been sat for a while. Would you stand with me? That's how you know we're getting to the end. It's going to be all right now. And those who are sharing the communion are going to come and, and, and quickly prepare it. Go straight there. And those who are leading us in worship are going to quickly get to where they're going. Go quickly. These stones, they speak to us of unity. They speak to us of the faithfulness of God. And they speak to us of a model for our living. I said already, they heaped up these stones. And as I was reading it, it got me thinking about how a pile of stones might speak to us, to them, very literally about a pile of water. How God kind of heaped up the water. And so if they heaped up the stones, it would look like that. Does anybody else think like this visually? I don't know about you. And it got me to thinking about how much of my Christian life, how much of what I do and how I behave, how much of our church looks like God and the things that God does. You see, in a moment, we're going to take bread and we're going to take a cup. And we do so because Jesus has instituted this for us. He's really good at making memorials that speak really well of truth and so Jesus says to us this is my body broken for you about the bread take and eat it and he says about the cup this is the new covenant that new relationship that's in my blood drink it up and Jesus is able to make these things that perfectly speak to reality but when I look at my life sometimes I wonder how much of it looks like Jesus how much does my heap of stones look like the pile of water and I want, to, I want us to ask ourselves today 
You know, you know what your Monday looks like, your Tuesday, your Wednesday. You know what the rest of your week looks like. How much of the rest of your week looks like Jesus? How much of what you're going to do with other brothers and sisters in Christ, how much of it does it look like the pattern of Jesus? That he was one with his Father. That he served those who were oftentimes very unlovely, but he did so anyway. And that he was constantly, consistently, and powerfully sent to those who did not yet know him. How much of our lives looks like that? Because I want my heap of stones to look like his piled up water. I want to look like Jesus. Anybody else? Anybody else? Come on, that's what we're going to commemorate here. And I know we're not always very good at it. As I was thinking about this, I thought about, do you remember Airfix models? You can, do you remember those Airfix models of airplanes and things? Did you ever make them when you were a kid? Did you ever make them? Okay. like A lot of you did. You just don't want to admit to it. I don't know what that's. We, I made these models when I was a kid. I used to love them. Did anybody else cement their fingers together? Yeah. I was, I, you know, it's, it's painful for me to admit this, but I was kind of rubbish at that. I was really bad. Um, I do remember on a number of occasions making them with my granddad. And, uh, and he was really, 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 really good at that kind of thing. Like crazy good. And he would... I, don't, I didn't realize it at the time, but he, he would just graciously limit me to pushing the bits out of the framework. So, you know, get the pieces ready, Greg. <laughs> and then we put it... To, and it, by the end, it would look something like what was on the box. Yeah? On a, what, what did you do as kids? <laughs> Finally, we would make a Spitfire. And it would have two wings and not three. This would be a good thing. We, God would graciously come to us in this moment of commemoration. This, this object lesson, and I don't demean it in that way, but this thing that is perfect, that speaks to us of his perfect work. And he would say to you, I know you've glued your fingers together with cement and you've put the wing on in the wrong place, but I want to come and I want to help you to make your life look like what was on the box. And he wants to come to us in this moment by his spirit and unstickify our fingers and take some bits off that shouldn't be where they are and put us back together in the way that we should be because he wants us to look like what's on the box. Anybody want to know what's on the box? It's Jesus. And I know we can't do it. I told you, it's not about pulling yourself up by your socks. It's not about trying a bit harder. But we're coming now in these closing moments to a moment of devotion and of faith. And I would long with all of my being for you to long for the presence of God in these moments. And do you know even right now, you want to encourage me, I hope you do. Close your eyes, would you do that? Because Jesus is your saviour. And would you begin to turn your hearts towards him? Could you do that? Could you turn your heart to him again and say, Moses might have left the tent, but I want to stay a bit longer. I want to stay a bit longer.